Hi, I'm Derek Morrison and welcome to another episode of Bring Your Own. Women have been leaders and innovators in the world of wine for generations, but we wanted to take an episode to celebrate some of the most inspiring matriarchs of the wine world. Joining us for this special episode are Sandia Chang from Bubble Dogs and Kitchen Table, Carolyn Branger from Stannery Wine Club, and Doug Regg from Le Cave de Puren. We're really fortunate for them to bring some special bottles of wine from their own cellars to share with us today, and we hope you enjoy the conversation. Special thanks to the great team at Luca Restaurant in Farringdon for hosting us in their private dining room for the filming of this episode. You can find them online at luca.restaurant. If you enjoy the episode, please take a moment to give a review online. Follow us on social media at BYO Podcast and share this episode with your friends. Hi everyone, thanks for coming tonight. Um, let's go around the table with some quick introductions. We'll start with uh, you, Doug. I'm Doug Regg. Uh, I'm a buying director for Le Cave de Perenne, do a bit of writing as well. Um, and I'm a veteran of one episode of this. <laughs> Welcome back. I'm Sandia Chang um, from Bubble Dogs and Kitchen Table. Um, mostly focusing on champagne, but I drink pretty much everything. And uh, Caroline. Um, thank you for welcoming us today. I'm Caroline. I um, work at Sanai Street Wine Company. Uh, we are Burgundy specialists and uh, we have a good tendency to try and find Pinot Noir and Chardonnay from around the world. And at Sanari, I also lead the uh, Women in Wine events, uh, where we try to focus on uh, women-only events, um, but also try just to get a woman around wine. So for today's episode, we wanted to celebrate some of the world's great uh, women winemakers. And uh, um, everybody's brought some special bottles that uh, I'm excited to share with you and to hear a bit more about why you brought them and uh, about the growers who make them. So um, we'll start with a little bit of a palate awakening from uh, Sandia. So do you want to tell us what you brought? So very typical of me, I brought champagne. <laughs> I hope nobody minds. <laughs> Um, I picked uh, Francois Bedell. I actually had a hard time picking a, a female producer because there's actually a lot now in, in Champagne. I mean, it's great. And um, I picked Francois Bedell because she's got such a nice story. She's like a she is a mother, but uh, um, when she was a single mother uh, with two sons, one of the son, uh, Vincent, was diagnosed with a serious illness when he was younger. And uh, she took him everywhere to every single doctor she can find to, to find a cure for him and nobody could cure him. Eventually she was recommended to a neighbor of hers who was a homeopathic um, doctor and eventually cured him through natural medicine. And ever since that day, the next day it was told she went into her vineyards, took every single chemical out of her, her winery, nothing was used in the, in the vineyards. Since then everything has been... Uh, organic and biodynamic and I think the last couple of years his son has now taken over so she's working side by side with him which is great That's it's a nice nice touching story uh, mostly Pinot Meunet 90% Pinot Meunet in this and this cuvee is a Disvan secret it's a secret <laughs> it's a 90% Pinot Meunet 5% Chardonnay 5% uh, Pinot Noir uh, her style is always long lease aging so this is 2008 Vintage disgorge in 2016, so always at least six years for this cuvee on the lease. Um, I always think it's fantastic to have like a super sort of rich style of champagne, a bit of sherry notes in there, some hazelnut skins. It's a lovely food wine too to, to match with like main courses, Sunday roast. It's great with Sunday roast. It's <laughs> um, the Marne Valley, so Pinot Meunier. I always think Pinot Meunier is like the the loser in school, you know, the schoolyard. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> you middle. 
You know when you're, you're trying to form. We, we play uh, we play a dodgeball in school. Do you play dodgeball yes, here? Yes. Yeah. So you know when you're trying to make up a team in dodgeball and you don't have enough people on your team, you pick Pinot Meunier because that's the only person left in the on the schoolyard that nobody wants to kind of play with. But you use him because you wanted to fill a team. Um, but I think nowadays people realize how special it is, and it's it's one of those sort of rough around the edges kind of characters. Um, to me, it always reminds me of spices, you know. And this is very typical, like almost anisey, uh, <coughs> licorice. Uh, I always think rye, toasted rye, you know. And people have grown to love Pinot Meunier. I like that. It's the the la It's the, the the Michael Jordan of the <laughs> of the of the grape varieties. You yeah. know, last picked in the cut from the basketball team and then grow up to be the, the star. That's cool. Uh, we, in Canada, we say like the alternate on a curling team is kind of like our <laughs> expression. I, which they have though. But Francois, she's still very active. I think, I think all sort of motherly um, winemakers tend to not leave their, their baby to their kids very easily. Uh, she's always there. I, I, I go to the uh, annual April champagne tasting. She is the mother goose. Like she speaks in a room of 100 people. They all stop and listen to her. So she's, she's quite a character in, in the... So for me, obviously, I couldn't be further from a female, uh, a great woman winemaker. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a young man, not so young man, from Saskatchewan, Canada. But, you know, and it's very... I wanted to avoid kind of getting into the, you know, the low-hanging fruit and just kind of miscategorizing this conversation because, you know, it's, it's there's been some absolute trailblazers, some of the trailblazers in as vignerons and wine growers in the world for decades have been uh, women. It, it's not like this is a new phenomenon to a degree, but uh, I think it's still important to highlight some of these great growers because I, I think in today's context, um, when we talk, when obviously, um, you know, um, issues around equality and um, 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 in society on a larger scale, there's. I think it's so important to highlight some of the accomplishments of, of so many great growers that uh, are doing it now, that, whether they're new initiatives or, or new to th their ventures, and also kind of some of the conversations we'll have later about some of the people who've, who've blazed trails before. But, um, you know, what do you think is some of the most, you know, I. How do you, how do you, how do you weave this, weave some of these people together in some sort of context? And um, so I kind of just when we say great women winemakers, um, what does that inspire to you, or why does that why is that something we should be sitting around talking about? Well, I, I don't want to caricature it as a, as a woman winemaker, but as a person who's a woman who's making wine. But presumably um, there have been difficulties uh, for women to get ahead in, in a world which is dominated by men and wine still is. I mean, we import wine from some very patriarchal mm -hmm. countries and there are no, virtually no women making wine in those countries or they're not really allowed to sort of present themselves as making wine even if they're helping. Um, the wine I'm showing is from Oregon, which is obviously a very liberal, enlightened place and women have a very powerful place in the Oregon wine industry but it wasn't always the case um, and I think they you know women have probably had to fight that much harder for recognition they probably had to deal with a certain amount of sexism when they're especially small growers when they're applying for loans from banks um, I'm sure they're facing a great difficulty for, for from men 
in suits who believe that they don't have the wherewithal or the stamina or might have children and might get distracted. So, I mean, that, all that's in, inherent or ingrained in, in, in a patriarchal society anyway. I don't think that impacts their ability as, as a winemaker because that's obviously to do with the, your skill as a farmer on the one hand uh, or you, and your skill as, as a winemaker another, which is you know about knowledge and, and whatever. So whether we're, we're never going to be talking about feminine wines, even if we even use that term sometimes, which you know I'm not against averse using averse to using that as as, as a descriptive term. But I, I know how facile it sounds sometimes. But I think it's more the circumstance that a lot of women have had to you know, sort of manoeuvre through and, and the difficulties, the logistical difficulties setting up and setting up a business. I think over the last 20 years it has come up a lot more on the surface that there are uh, female winemakers, that they are, they've been making the wines for 30 or 40 years uh, when, when male couldn't be there or uh, and they're just coming up more on the front scene whereas before they were hidden behind the domain's name now we talk about the domain, but we also talk about them, um, and we put them forward. I think it's um, it's more yeah, it's more forward nowadays. I think it's just time changing in general. It's a natural progression of evolution of both like humans and also technology. You know, nowadays we can all work from home. A lot of things can be done from home. Therefore, women is easier for them to do things because if even if they look after kids, they can still work from home and you know, gender equality. Now men stay at home and look after kids and women can go off and, and that's okay, you know? Yeah. More and more so okay. In, <laughs> in my house, for the, the, better, the betterment of my daughter, I'm, anytime I'm left alone with her, I feel a bit Not. like I'm compromising her. Like, no, I'm but, um. but I think, I mean, from a, from a hospitality point of view, from, from, restaurant, from the restaurant world, we see more and more female um, in the industry as well. And I, I don't think it's because uh, we or men or or you know people allow it. I just think because it's the popularity of the of the industry that's creating more female. The ratio is still still big, you know, to men to female. But in general, it's just more popular. And I think wine, the wine business is the same. My my father thinks it's because we haven't had a great war in in decades, and because there's no war, you know, things like this is just it's. Enjoyment is not something that's necessity. Therefore, there's more and more different wines being made because everybody's just enjoying life. You know, nobody's saving to to save their family. Um, so, with that comes with more opportunities for for women to get involved. I think. Yeah, I think more democratization, as in like barriers of women staying at home, as you say. Or back in the 60s in France, you had to get married in order to leave your parents home. It was quite rare, if you were from the countryside, it was quite rare to be uh, living on your own, having your own flat and, um, and evolving in the society, getting to do what you want. Uh, you still had to uh, get married to get out, otherwise it wasn't working. And um, uh, there's a word in French, emancipation, I don't know if yeah. that's the same in English. Um, like, get your freedom to do what you want. And uh, today we have the result of it. And uh, I, I feel very lucky to be part of this generation where every door is opened, and uh, and you know we can be sons, we can uh, we can be have responsibilities, be in, be in charge of a wine list, um, lead uh, lead the life and enjoy the wines and buy the wines that we like without any limitation, more or less. And 
and I think for winemakers, is, I guess the same happened, and now they are even more in the scene, and um, and it's great because I think there's difference as well between female winemaker and male winemaker. Sometimes the still the vines speak for themselves, but there's a care and attention that can be a bit more focused. Um, the wine that I brought is, is quite in that direction, I find, uh, where father used to make the wine, they were a bit austere, and now we're moving towards more more elegance or more approachability, I'd say. My wife has a better palate than me. I mean, a much better sense of smell and a better sense of taste. What she doesn't have is, inverted commas, the education uh, in terms of having gone to wine school or done courses. Had she done so, she would probably be in wine and I wouldn't. But actually coming back to what is, what is the reason for emancipation is education. You know, people going to further education, higher education, going to wine schools, doing science degrees, and all the, all the things that pretty women weren't doing sort of 30, 40, 50 years ago has uh, now changed completely. You know, women can do science, women can be analytical, women you know, can make wine. It, it, it's, we're not surprised anymore, but it, it, yeah, there's always, and then, the, of course, there's, there's, there, there, there's another tradition of, like, you know, the families, you know, handing on to the son or the daughter, whoever wanted it more, or splitting the estate in two. So we're now at that point whereby a lot of estates in Burgundy particularly split between the son and the daughter, and then they take it in their different directions. And I wonder if it's, um, it's like an intellectual decision. Well, obviously, it's partly an intellectual decision, but we're, we're talking about farming and biodynamics. Isn't that a sign of humility as well? Is, is that it's really, the, it's really the vines and the place that make the wine and not the person and the ego who does it. So you know, I'm particularly thinking of, of, of Kelly's wines, which I'm gonna show later. It's never about I. I never comes into it. This, I find this an incredibly important um, lesson to learn because I always use the word winemaker well, once upon a time. I never use the word. It's now vigneron. It's someone who is, who is nursing, nursing the vineyard and is in tune with nature. And I think you've got to take a step back from your, your ego uh, and be a, quite humble to, to realize that how important nature is in, in the whole winemaking process. And I think women are, you know, maybe, maybe they're quite the, the, some, the, the people you've reduced, I think they show that actually it's more important. It's not as obviously logical thing to do to make the transition to biodynamics, even if you thought it was going to you know, make better wine and maybe even more expensive wine. It's, it's actually a, it's a big sort of like, I think it's a big sort of instinctual decision as well. So in, in, in my life, I've, I wish that I could be more articulate about um, the things that I see and experience and feel, um, but more often than not, the most profound things uh, I've experienced in my life and moments are uh, beyond the words that I can effectively capture them. But I think that there's always something important about those moments, um, and so they always stick with me, um, even if I can't articulate them. And anytime I've met Elizabeth Foradori, I have that same kind of experience. She's really inspiring, enchanting, uh, I don't know what it is, but she's just, you can tell when you're with her that she's a special person in the world. Um, and that has, well, be no wine on the table, it, has nothing, it almost has nothing to do with that, but I think all of the wines that she makes um, kind of capture some of that essence. And, and um, you know, her story of, uh, you know, I think she took over the winery from her father in 85 or 86, somewhere, somewhere in there, and it was, you know, she was quite, quite young at the time. She'd been working with, um, fairly commercial industrial producers in, in, in the region 
And um, the way that she kind of transformed the domain, the way that she's kind of championed um, not only for her, her own domain in the region, but uh, um, to really be a leader in biodynamics and working sustainably in the vineyards. Um, I, I think she's, she's just been such an important um, person to not only the Dolomites and, and that region in, in Italy, but, uh, but across the world in, in the way that she um, has really had a massive impact on so many people. But her wines are just really special. I, I, was, at the, I was at the domain, um, at the winery with her uh, last year on a, on a trip with, uh, um, with a few other people from, from the UK. And we got to taste some old bottles from the cellar, but just everything about that experience is really inspiring. And you go through, you visit the vineyard, you see some of the, the, the you know, some of the, 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 you know, the composting and all, um, just the, the vibrancy of, of each vineyard. And then you visit other producers in the region and you just hear the reverence that they all have for her is, is pretty special. And, um, you know, there's, when you, if you talk about what makes a winemaker great or what makes a, a winemaker special, some of these things I think speak to the things that I can't quite articulate. And um, um, this wine in particular, uh, I, I, was, I could have brought any one of her wines. Every, there's not a bottle of Elizabeth of Fordori's wines that I taste that isn't really excite me. Um, the Manzoni Bianco, Pinot Bianco, the Nociola is an absolutely beautiful wine. They, all of the wines have such a distinct personality, but they're all really exciting. And this is, a, um, and don't correct me if I'm wrong, but this is, a, this is a new cuvee, I think 14. Was the first release that she did? Yes, this is not actually made from her vineyard, but a biodynamic vineyard of a friend, which is about 80 years old vines in a, in a really wild place. Actually, the name Fuera Pista means off-piste. It means like literally out of sight, out of mind vineyard. And it's a very wild and very beautiful vineyard, but obviously appeals to, to, her, to her love of biodynamics. So I haven't tasted the 15 from bottle yet. Last time I tasted it was from Amphora at the winery with her. And so this is, this is pretty cool. But even then, it was just so vibrant and energetic. And so let everybody taste it before I kind of say anything more about it, because I think that's important. <laughs> it's great. The color is so beautiful. It's very sort of like, you know, so transparent. And yet, and yet there's depth to it. But it's, it's a subtlety. Like, uh, you mentioned the Noziolo and Manzoni. It, it, these are wines that um, you creep up to them, and like uh, you know, you don't you don't sort of they're not forcing themselves upon you in any way. You have to sort of be open to the subtleties, the nuances of the flavors, and uh, it's made in this sort of wonderful. I think there's a patience about when you make wine in amphora, uh, and um, an incredible delicacy and a coolness as well. The wine sort of suggests coolness, you know, the color suggests coolness, the shininess of the, of the wine, but it also on the palate. This wine for me, when I heard about this wine, I was excited to taste the wine. Um, and then when I first had it, I was just, it was so far from what I expected. I mean, we know Pinot Grigio is a gray skin grape. You know, some, some maceration, you can extract some of this color. And so we can feel that in the wine, we can see that in the wine, that there's obviously some skin contact and skin maceration. But what I think surprises me in, in from the textures and, and softness and finesse of this wine is it's six months on the skins. It's six months on the skins in Amphora. So it's, you know, we're, when you think of these kinds of long uh, macerated skin contact wines, you tend to find wines that are, um, have, a, have a bit more um, texture, weight, and power in not necessarily the most finessed way. And so for her to have just kind of had the vision and interpretation to have created this wine and have it come out with such finesse is something that I always think is really special. And I think it epitomizes the kind of the delicate 
hand and elegance of, of, of all of her wines. And I think to achieve it in such a way that when you think about six months on skins and amphora wines, our, I think our first re uh, recollection or first thought is going to be something that's um, not nearly as um, um, elegantly constructed as this. So. I think it's interesting how Doug pointed out the, how it looks. I've never even thought about looking at a wine and determining the the coolness or the, the energy. Like that color is, there's some sort of energy in that that color, I don't know. The, no, it comes to light. The clear, yes, yeah. yeah, it's, it's like it's a diamond, shiny. like yeah. a nice diamond that's been cut right. Yeah. Yeah. But diamonds are diamonds, depends how you cut it, I guess. And the quality of the grapes, and that is pretty. That is a very pretty. Also, it's just even that, you, you, that tannic sugar, it's just so soft. I mean, it's just, it's, but it's so fresh and vibrant and energetic, as you say. It's, um, I try I to describe it like, like this. It, you know, that we, we think of wine and we think of extraction of flavor, but think of it as infusion. Infusion sort of like is a totally different direction. And to me, it, it has obviously taken out some tannins and whatever, but no, it feels like harmonious, and that's more of a, an infusion. It's, you know, it's one thing as opposed to lots of little things. Why do you think people made Pinot Grigio white in the first place? Because they're harvesting unripe grapes. That's, I mean, uh, uh, my, not, maybe not originally, but I think that's the, the, that's the reason we've had such, so much bad Pinot Grigio in, from Italy for so long, is that's the, the association became with this high, how, much, how, much, how, how big can we yield this, how cheap can we make this, and you know, it's, uh, it can be fairly neutral and fairly pleasant at the worst of its expressions. But I think at the best of its expressions are, this is on the uh, one, uh, one end of it, but I think a friend of mine in, in the Okanagan, Pinot Grigio is a very popular grape in the Okanagan Valley, and um, um, <laughs> Carolyn was just there, in fact, actually tasting them. And he does a, he does a little rosé that's it's 48 hours of Pinot Gris, um, uh, 48 hours on the skins, and it's just such a beautiful sight. I mean, if you have the phenolic ripeness of grapes, if you're actually ripening your grapes properly, and you're, you know, um, you're, you're, you're making really quite pure fruit, then the, the grape actually lends so well to that kind of winemaking. But I think more often than not, it's um, both, you know, it's a bit of a chicken and egg. I mean, an industrialized abuse of a grape perpetuates the, the diminished perception of its value in the marketplace, which further dissuades people from actually making low yield, trying to make wines like this, really, because it's so countercultural too. But isn't it, it's a trade-off as well about acidity and, and, and texture. So for years, we've been told acidity is necessary in wines, but there are certain grapes like Pinot Gris that, are, you know, when they ripen, they lose all the acidity drops out. So what can you do without so much acidity? You need uh, tannin, you need some astringency, you need some structure. And I think in Friuli and Slovenia, you know, they're, they're used to working with, with some skin contact and then they, they take it as the advantage, as the grape ripens, more color comes to the skin, you have more material to work with, you can make something which is quite considerable. Whereas if you're not gonna do all that good farming and all that process, then you have to harvest as early as possible, press it, and, you, and then neutralize it and you've got something which is, which is, as you say, very industrial, but that's what white wines are, aren't they? They're just, someone's pressing any old grape and getting clean juice, and then that's what they're beginning with. And it, it really, the grape becomes almost irrelevant. At least this is a celebration of, of the grape and the farm. Mm -hmm. she, she simply understood as well. Um, I mean, what I see through this one, other than just the taste of it, is someone who's quite accomplished, who understood the grape variety, who understood what she could get from it. If you push further than just the first step of making a white wine, and that's 
that's what is determination and having an aim and, and understanding your environment, understanding your vineyards and, uh, and that's what maybe women are good at or what a good winemaker should be doing, whether it's male or female. Um, and that's, that's quite a brilliant wine, the, the, the color, the energy as you were saying, uh, the tannins are there as well. I think it's, uh, I wasn't, when you said Dolomites, I was like, wow, there's <laughs> quite a bit of body and, um, and a lot of minerality as well. That's, she's a brilliant winemaker and it's, it's good to have people like that who, other than just biodynamic, I think biodynamic uh, comes from the love of your vineyard and, uh, and, and looking after your vineyard because uh, usually it's, it's people's backyards, it's, uh, they live next to it so you don't want to put chemicals next to where you're going to live I suppose. I think when you know if you spend time with her too or you go through you taste through different amphorae and you taste through different barrels and you know, she's had an evolution as well I mean she used to she worked with I mean She's worked with kind of every kind of vessel, and and in the last, but you push for it, you know, ten twenty years. But she was quite conventional once. Yeah, you know, the yeah. farming was the, was, was not was conventional. Um, the winemaking was was very conventional. A lot of oak, a lot of new oak, very Bordeaux style, and that's how she established an international reputation. Yes. Um, a bit like Thierry Germain in the Loire is is is, is through extractive new oak style. Sommeliers loved it because it reminded them of Bordeaux, and then. I think here's a person who is liberated by biodynamics. Firstly, so focusing on on the vineyard, rediscovering you know styles of wine that were made and made like traditionally, and her love of biodynamics and a greater involvement in the vineyard led to a total change, transformation in the winemaking approach. She became much more liberated. The wines became freer, um, lighter, fresher, purer. Uh, she sort of pretty well embraced more natural winemaking as well. And then came the amphora and the cement and getting rid of pretty well, you know, except for the Granato, pretty well all the barrels, no new oak at all in the winery. And, and wow, it's, it's incredible. Well, She's a happier person as well. I feel that she is now totally in tune with, with the wines, whereas before she was like doing it because it's a job. And now it's like, it's her, it's an expression well, well, of her. And she was a very, uh, well, she, uh, to be honest, I, I mean, from, I think uh, what, what she said, if I can re recall correctly, I mean, she was, uh, she, she was working in a very technical, very kind of uh, uh, commercial, however you want to define it in this kind of uh, um, formulaic or this perspective. And, and then when she started to, I think it was some old Toraldigo vine. It was some old Toraldigo vineyards that she started to kind of work with and, and um, I don't want to say experiment, but started to apply some more sustainable vineyard practices. And really went from being these, you know, un, almost unusable vineyards to thriving, vibrant, living vineyards. And then that kind of just, I think, cascaded and compounded as, uh, over years and years and through the evolution that Doug said. And, you, and now, you know, the, the, she has two other Toraldigo cuvées um, um, that both used to be in, in Barrel, then Bote, then uh, now both in Amphora. And I've tasted some of the old bottles of, you know, off vintage 80s stuff that are not made in the way that she tasted. And they were just still stunning wines. So you can tell that there's obviously some, uh, even with the shift in approach, there's always been a natural um, intuition or a, a ability to interpret what's the, the growing process. But that, you know, I think the things I've read and what she said, it was that kind of pointing to that moment with that one, I think it was the Toraldigo Vineyard where it was kind of really an epiphany where she saw the life come into it and that it started producing better and, and more healthily. And then this kind of fueled the, 
um, moving more and more vintage over vintage and, and um, applying more kind of diversity and biodiversity to the, to the vineyards and then that just from, and now she's really become kind of a champion of uh, um, uh, natural winemaking, sustainable viticulture, however really you want to, to classify it. Sorry, yes. She really wanted to express the terroir diversity, so, and you're right about the terroir de because she was making the, the terroir de and but the sort of two styles, you know, lighter, powerful, powerful, and then it was the moray and the scars on, and when you taste them side by side, you say, you have an epiphany as well. I mean, she might, she had the epiphany, then you have it. You absolutely see why she decided to go down that more natural route because she really wanted to express how versatile Tarandago was, whereas before it was maybe a bit of a square grape, you know, presented squarely, and now it's very nuanced. I think it would be so, so, uh, so incredible to have seen these people at the kind of their, um, their origins in this kind of adventure, and, and you know, when she started in the 80s to. Um, taking over and to see now where you see her she's just so relaxed her son's now taking over more and more and and um, she's kind of more hands-off but you know, I just think that the evolution of people you know whether they're women whether they're men any 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 professional who can go through such a um, uh, a massive transformation and evolution and, and achieve so much and then become such an inspiring inspiring figure to others is is really inspiring for me, but I think it uh, you know it comes back to what you said earlier about that 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 humility that um, if you don't have a humble perspective, especially in this industry wherever you work, um, then you're not going to have such uh, reflections or epiphanies. I think. So, Carolyn, do you want to tell us a bit of what you brought and uh, the girl you brought? Um, I brought a fissin. Fixing. Fissin, premier cru les arbelets from the domaine de Niberto. It's not out of the context, but it says the Liberto on the label, but it's uh, made by Amélie Berto. Um, Domaine de Niberto was created in the 18th century, um, not as the Niberto, but it was a family. And, uh, and then she's passed, been passed on from generation to generation, sons every time, so that, that's why we still have the name. And then um, until de Liberto, after the war, after World War One, um, the husband died um, uh, a bit too young, and so the mother of Guy took over until Guy could take over, and then um, and then um, and then Guy's uh, son, both sons, uh, decided to stay together in the domain, and then um, and then Amelie, Amelie uh, took over from her father in 2013 officially. Uh, so it's been passed on within, in, from generation to generation, like that. And um, uh, Amélie's uh, mother, um, who is uh, from the Gerbe family, who is based in uh, Vaughan Romanée. Uh, so nowadays the domain has uh, von, some Vaughan von Premier Cru, Vaughan Village, and some Echouzeau uh, from Letreux. And so from her father's heritage, Domaine de Liberto, there is some uh, mostly Fissin, because they are based in Fissin itself. And uh, they expanded between World War II and now with uh, some Gevray Chambertin village and, and Premier Cru Fissin. I really like what Amelie does. She's 26, and uh, and you know, uh, for me that's that's a sort of achievement. And I, I like to see the new generation arriving and embracing uh, winemaking and um, respecting uh, traditions and respecting family and combining both. Um, still making her style of wine, but respecting what happened before, keeping the family's name on the label, um, 
from 2015 it says Berto Gerbe, so that both her mother and father uh, are represented uh, throughout the name of the domain, uh, which I think is brilliant because that's what should be done. We talked, we mentioned it earlier, where by uh, inheritance you used to have just sons taking over and keeping the family um, uh, name on the label, and then whenever you were a lady, a girl, you you were selling your land to your husband, basically, uh, and sort of losing your name. So I, th I think it's a, a, it's a nice nod to uh, to her mother, and uh, I think she makes some great wine. Fissa is a sort of appellation that you don't always think about. You don't think there's a huge quality or huge potential, but actually, um, with when you go to Premier Cruz and even village level, nicely located, you get some lovely concentration, uh, a lot of power, um, Soft tannins, as usual, with the Pinot Noir, but these vines were planted in the late uh, late 50s and 70s. So you've got vines that are um, very concentrated. Um, the berries are really, really teeny tiny, so it's quite a small production. Um, and uh, you need to know how to handle that, I think, um, to learn how to. The wine's beautiful. I mean, it's got a yeah. beautiful texture, but it's very elegantly soft. I mean, it's... it's um, um, I love the fruit profile, the tannic structure is so fine and velvety, but it's just... I love the concentration mm -hmm. of that wine, that's, that's something yeah. you can easily yeah. lay down for 10 years and, uh, and, and take, have a, open a cracker bottle again and, and you still have a lot of pleasure and still be fresh and young and uh, uh, really enjoy it. I really like this appellation. I think it's so, it's like, you know, it's underrated, people just don't want to move away from the big villages. Oh, this is great. It's always really good wines, great value. Yeah. Amazing. Things, well, things I can afford. And I love 14. <laughs> I, for me, this wine is also very much 14. It's this this yeah. finesse. This there, It's not 15. It's not super dense. not over... Um, not overdone. Not that I'm saying 15s are overdone. But there's just this... Just the right amount of depth and freshness. It's just that it's my... Exactly the kind of burgundy I like to drink. Nice. So this is like... I love the crunch of 14s. That, yeah. That's, that's yeah. a vintage that you can yeah. drink nowadays, and uh, I love it. Uh, they're just balanced, yeah. right? I mean, they're just in such. Uh, uh, who's it? Uh, I mean, not, lots of people. Jaya, I think, it was a great wine, is always great wine. It's always, like, balanced wine is always nice to drink, and that's 14 for me. I think you need to respect the vintage, but also, um, I think. It's been tempting for a lot of growers in Burgundy um, who've, who've sort of looked at the sort of richer wines coming out of Bordeaux to sort of track the sort of maceration, to track the oak regime. And Pinot is such a gorgeous grape variety to have it emasculated effectively by, by new oak and by extraction. Um, I think a, a, a cooler vintage brings out something which is really fine in, in a lot of growers, good instinct. A, a warmer vintage brings out the worst instincts in some growers because they really believe that nature's giving him that much more material. But I, I, I think I always go for Burgundy in the you know, in 14 or 8. Uh, these are my favorite vintages because it's more linear uh, and it still has amazing aging potential, uh, but it's not so, so flattering. But the flattering is, is empty sometimes, so this is really delish. You know? And the, the oak is beautifully done. The finish on this is really quite nice as well because it went to that kind of the seductive nature of that fruit kind of goes away. You get a bit more of this kind of a bit of spice, a bit of kind of like um, a bit of like kind of black tea kind of uh, tannins. Just yeah. good tannins at the end. Really great. 
It's really nice, yeah. So, Karen, I mean, this is a good, good point. To, I mean, so, so you work with these wines, obviously. Um, I think it's interesting that you've brought, like, kind of what you think is one of the next great, potentially next great growers, um, to kind of contrast with some of the, some of the other stuff. What, what, tell, can you tell us a bit about Sanary Wine Club and, like, what you're, you're doing? Because I know you do lots of women in wine events, and, and that's been a big, a big part of what you've been doing. Yeah. It was uh, the inspiration for for having a more fo a more uh, a focus on more uh, woman-driven events uh, came from the fact that I, I as a som or even outside of that I attended or I was uh, doing the service for uh, BYU dinners and uh, where it was usually it's not there's no blockage you know it's, it doesn't say men only on the invite but. Uh, mostly those events were just with the uh, with guys and uh, doing a BYO, uh, bringing some fantastic labels and uh, and talking about wine all night and um, and that's something that I really enjoyed doing as well, having a nice dinner and uh, gathering people who have a common interest in wine and uh, and sharing that and talking about it. But there was never a woman in that, and I'm like, what what? stopping people from, from making the step and coming and um, there's a big image of uh, dusty, mal-dominated and boring um, events that's attached to wine tasting sometimes, although it's changing. But I thought, you know what, let's just make a woman-only event like that and maybe we'll have people interested and uh, sent out an invite and talked about it to other people and I was um, surprised to see, uh, to see how successful it is and um, we just did a trial one at uh, at our office, uh, which went really well. We had Karen and David and Diana Sess um, coming for this event, presenting uh, who did a BYO as well, which was pretty brilliant. And I was like, wow, let's uh, let's move it forward. It's not about um, having a club. I don't I don't want to have that image of just club and it's closed and it's just for women and women building that barrier again, That's, there's no need for that. I think it's just about having a platform where people can come. I say platform because it can be anything. It can be a bar, it can be a happy hour, it can be a dinner, it can be wine tasting, you know, whatever inspires people, whatever brings people together and, um, and make it more comfortable for ladies to just express themselves. And uh, we're not here just to show a beautiful label and, and have a trophy. Uh, that's it's it's about um, sharing a good bottle of wine with like-minded people, uh, like-minded ladies, and do that. So lucky uh, we are in good relationship with Jancis uh, Jan uh, Robinson, who was really interested in the event because, from her perspective as well, with Purple Pages, uh, there's a really low percentage of uh, female uh, subscribers, and uh, she, that's why she actually liked. Our event and decided to um, to host one uh, with us, and so it was a BYU event, and the lineup that we had on that night was outstanding, and uh, lots of premier crews, uh, lots of big names, or we had some Comte de Vaugrange, uh, we got some uh, Coche du Rhin, uh, some uh, uh, Pierre Yves Colin Moret, and uh, everything was uh, 2011 and older. So, you know that 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 showed me that. There are women who have fantastic sellers, who uh, do have the buying power, the interest, and who are just keen for these kind of events. And um, 
and I was very, very enthusiastic about it. So, you know, we, we keep doing regular events, either when we have winemakers around, so uh, with the engineer we did another one with uh, Agnès Paquet and um, uh, Delphine from uh, the Domaine Albert Michaud. So it's quite a big negos, but I thought it was great because it gives you another perspective. And every time it's about how it is to be a woman winemaker and or, or how it is to evolve within um, a male-dominated work uh, environment. Um, and I like the, the ladies who come here for these kind of events, they all have a thirst for knowledge. They, they come to have a good time, but to learn something as well. I mean, I think it pulls it back to some of the original conversations about you know, the, the pains of living in a, in, through a very patriarchal society, the old boys club, oh, the old boys clubs of well, I mean, London is one of the capital of old boys clubs and the historic center of it. And wine has been the lubricant <laughs> kind of inside those walls for you know, centuries. So, um, you know, it's, an, it's not really a surprise, I think, when we think of these um, events, not only drawing, um, drawing only men, but a particular kind of um, men, generally, some of, these, some of these events can be. So I think there definitely can be, um, some of them, I don't mean generalize too much, but some of these kind of, this context of wine drinking can sometimes be a little bit too de detached and far away from, for, from what, how I like to drink wine and what I I will generalize, it. okay. I, would, I, I do uh, an incredible number of uh, wine events, you know, in shops and restaurants, wine bars, and I dread uh, a mainly male audience. Um, there, there's something about stags locking horns and, you know, like my opinion or... I've heard this, this is right, this is wrong, this is, this is correct, this is the way wine should be made. Yeah, patronizing from, from people who have never experienced what it is to, to, to grow a grape or, or make a wine. So it's this sort of knowledge, <coughs> this received knowledge, which is, the, which is all about tradition and, and a perception that this is right and this is wrong. Whereas women, in my experience, incredibly open-minded, never had a row with one, uh, with a woman uh, at, at, at a tasting. Always the ones to ask questions uh, and, if, um, and to offer an opinion in a, in a sort of slightly more humble, questioning way. I'm not saying it, it is a generalization, but, but I've done enough now to be able to generalize from experience. It, yeah. The wine, the wine forum is a, is a very, um, is a very, it's, 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 it's a very popular form in which male privilege can be demonstrated. And, and I mean, why, wine is such a subjective thing, you know, everybody, everybody, whatever people say about it is always an opinion, you know, so when you have, you know, male, you know, it's all about who's got the bigger opinion. Yeah, bigger something. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think it's, when we talk about, um, you know, I think it's part of, you know, part of the reason that we talk about the, in, um, um, inheritance of vineyards, the inheritance of um, uh, of domains, is really uh, has helped in lots of ways create and, and, and generate some of these iconic uh, women winemakers historically, and, 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 and much ahead of the times of what we've seen in um, terms of uh, ownership in other realms of business in those same time, in, in those same decades. Um, you both work and have worked through the industry in very various different roles, and um, on this end of it, that you've really had to. Uh, or in your roles based on merit and, and whatever else. Have you, do you notice firsthand, I know both of you are involved with uh, Saturday Club and, and, and Sandia, I know you do lots of different women in wine or women in hospitality events, and um, do you see changes or do you see more of these kinds of 
clubs or associations or this kind of groups of camaraderie to kind of help um, work together as uh, as units or I mean, maybe just overall, do you see much has changed in your career in the industry working as a woman? There is a lot more support because there are things that people just don't address. For example, you and a you know man and woman or you know a family having a child, it is. It is nature that the woman has to bear the actual child, you know. The physicality of it just, it's never been really addressed in hospitality in general. You know, what happens? What happens when the woman is gone for, you know, a year? You know, can she work the floor? Can she sell wine? Can she, you know, carry wine boxes, stock cages, you know? She can't physically do it, so what do we do? But nobody's really addressed that, because normally we just, let's not hire her, you know? Let's, or she's not, she's not going to work out if she has a kid. Or as a woman, you're like, I can't have a kid. If I have a kid, I'll never get to you know, carry on my career. You but, have to plan it. Yeah, but more and more so, I recently went to a, a woman to the a hospitality forum, and some, some lady in the audience brought up the point. She's like, you know, I just opened a restaurant. I'm juggling a kid. You know, I, I'm, right now, I can't barely breathe. What do I do? I couldn't answer it because I don't have that experience, but there was a few mothers in the room that was uh, really insightful and, and supportive and said, you know what you realize sometimes is that the world will go on, so if you don't answer that email that day because you have to take your kid or to the hospital or wherever, it's going to be okay. That email will not kill you. The world would not stop. But without somebody telling you that that's okay, you feel like it's not okay. You know, yeah. so I think with... Pressure yourself a lot. Yeah, so there's more support. I think it's better and... and they will encourage more women to take you know, steps that they never thought they could. Making wine, for example. What if they have to harvest? Who's going to look after the kid? You know? Well, I wonder if too, a vineyard life and you know, agricultural life in general kind of lends itself quite well to family in a, in a sense. And I, I think there's both a harmony with the, uh, the emotion, the energy, and also just the day-to-day -day tasks of what, what that does. I mean, um, I mean, obviously, there's, it's a lot of back-breaking work, and, and there's a lot of of, of, of heavy manual labor involved with the things that you need to do to maintain um, maintain vineyards or agriculture in any way, but you know it's a difference of walking out your front door, taking your kid for a stroll through the farm. I mean, my family's background is all agricultural. No wine in Saskatchewan, Canada, mind you, but um, you know I've I've spent my share of time in chicken coops and and um, you know and pea fields and and, um, and 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 things like that, and I, I think that. Oh, that, in a sense, lends quite quite well to it. But you know, it, it's just what you say. These associations, there is always going to be, no matter what state we get to, is you know, as a society, there's a unique set of challenges and um, um, burdens, or, or however you want to put it, that is will, will never be shared in, in, in similar ways. And um, uh, I think that's always going to create a unique perspective that's really quite interesting and valuable to you know, every sector. It's the nature of wine growing though and sort of winemaking is that uh, you are sometimes isolated but you need help from others and you shouldn't be afraid to ask so every vintage of course people it's the old-fashioned way they get together you know you need extra help or you need to bring your harvest in your neighbors will help you or other growers will help you and you will do the same for them so I think you know increasingly we see that um, you know, people do not work in isolation. We, you know, we, we live in a community and uh, we, we need to support each other, do unto others the golden rule of, of, of well, it's business, but of life itself, really. So, Doug, you've, you've, you've broken the rules. You've brought in several of your own. Um, but, uh, no. So, you, can you tell us a bit about the, the two wines you brought? Why you brought, why you well, brought they're, them? They're both from one grower. Uh, they're both from uh, Kelly Fox. Um, and the reason why I brought two rather than one, uh, the reason why I broke the rules, is because I wanted to 
talk about terroir and the articulation of terroir and how the winemaker can sort of, in a way, immerse herself in the vineyard and or express the, the difference between two vineyards so eloquently. Um, and this is, Kelly is an incredibly modest person. She doesn't really like to talk about her wines and I don't like to nail a butterfly to a wheel and, and, and overanalyze um, what is in the bottle. But I, but I think the wines speak really clearly. Well, I think the vineyards speak really clearly. So I'm going to pour in the left-hand glass. This makes no difference when you're filming. Uh, my left-hand glass, the Mirabai. And I think if you can just look at the color uh, of it. Um, so this is, these are both Pinot Noirs, and they're from two different vineyards. And the Mirabai is from a vineyard called Marsh, which is actually spelled M-A-R. E-S-H, uh, belongs to a family called Marsh. And in the right-hand glass, just for a sort of contrast, look at the colour difference. 2015. Both 2015. I'm, gonna, I'm pouring the Momtazi um, vineyard Pinot Noir. So same, vineyard, uh, same vintage, both from Oregon, uh, not, a, not a million miles apart, but look at the difference in the colour. The wines are made in exactly the same way, so to me this is, is quite remarkable. The first, the, the, the first one looks like the Pinot Grigio from Foragori. Yeah. In fact, I, I think last year Kelly made a Pinot Grigio which it was probably darker than a Pinot Noir. <laughs> so how far are these vineyards? So the first one, the, um, the one with the colourful label, this is, um, this is uh, the Mirabai, um, is Dundee Hills. And Dundee Hills, um, so we're in Oregon, we're in northwest Oregon. Dundee Hills is um, renowned for its volcanic soil, which is called Jory. Um, and it's quite deep soil, and it's very red soil. I, I can still get under my shoes to this day. It's sort of rusty red soil, and um, almost like, ox like a lot of iron, and sort of, but an oxidized soil. And um, the wines from the Dundee Hills always show this sort of like delicacy in terms of the color of the wine, not in terms necessarily of the expression, but, but, but certainly in color, so that's quite interesting. The one on the right is from McMinnville, which is I suppose like 20 minutes, half an hour away. Also volcanic soils, but uh, different. Um, so the volcanic soils here are really shallow. And this is very, very high bedrock of marine sedimentary. The vineyards are slightly different uh, in terms of their exposure. It's a slightly cooler um, in the sense that it's quite close to um, a gap in the coastal range called the Vanduza Gap, which brings in sort of cooler Pacific air. Whereas the Marsh Vineyard in the Dunhills, it, it, it's warmer, it feels warmer. And the wines present in a slightly sort of warmer way, warmer, more open, Montazi, cooler, more mineral, more direct um, style. Um, but Kelly makes the wines really identically. So her idea is not about extraction. It's really about capturing the unique voice of these particular vineyards. So Marsh is, is on unrooted um, vines. It's the fourth oldest vineyard in, in this part of the Dundee Hills. Uh, the original vines were planted in 1970 and then there was another lot planted in 1976. It's dry farmed. Um, this is the vineyard that Kelly spends a lot of time in and really almost communicating with the vines. I, you know, I, and I think what's so interesting and beautiful about what she does is, is her relationship 
with the vineyard. She knows every vine personally. She knows every row, obviously. Every, but um, and it's only fifteen rows. Uh, but you know, the, this vineyard has personality. It's a really wild place as well. There's so much nature. It's sort of throbbing. It's quite elemental. It feels warm and like you can almost feel the heat coming off the soil as well. Um, and again, it's something of that just capture. It gets captured in in the ultimate wine itself. Um, she seems to harvest later than most of her Oregon peers. I mean, I think this was harvested in the third week of, of September. This is really hot vintage, 2015. So she's harvesting quite late, so long growing season. And I think the wine, you know, resultant wine is more harmonious. As, um, and then um, always hand-picked grapes. I mean, she does everything just by herself. She uses biodynamic preparations. Um, this is not certified. This particular vineyard, the Montasi vineyard, is certified. So... Yeah, it's very much, this is about nature. And then um, she's slightly changed her method of, of, of working. Uh, she wants something cool as well in the wine. So she uses 100% stems now, a um, whole bunch. Whereas I think when she started in 2007, it was about 20 to 30%. But Oregon is changing. It's becoming a lot warmer. Summer's a lot hotter now. And I think you've got to have an edge to your wine. Um, what you don't have, which you have in, in Burgundy, you notice the, acid, the natural acidity from, from the soils. You know, volcanic soils are not limestone, clay, or sort of schist, or whatever. So uh, we're, we're lacking perhaps that element. So it has to be repaid in, in, uh, in terms of humility and delicacy and, and purity. So let the wine speak. Um, then um, but she doesn't do any extractions or pump overs. This is really, you know, whole body bichage. So she can be in a vat with the wine and, you know, not, you know, not pushing it or pulling it or pumping it over, not looking for color. As you can see, there's no, there's really very little color. And then an ambient uh, ferment, you know, you know, um, no temperature control, native yeasts, um, you know, free run juice. This is what it is. It's, and there's something, I always find something silky. I don't want to say feminine, but you know what I mean? It, it's sort of like Volney-esque in terms of its open arm, open sort of open sort of to you style of wine, almost soft, herbal, earthy. This is the, this is, this is Marsh. Um, oh, the, the beautiful wine. I mean, her wines always have this kind of just understatement to them. I always think that they're just really pretty is, too, is the low-hanging fruit, um, pardon the pun. I mean, it's just they're really pretty wines, but there's always this precision, but softness. And, and, and really, I mean, I've, I've only met her briefly at tastings. I, I've not spent any intimate uh, uh, length of time with her. But, um, you know, you really feel a bit her personality, that kind of understatement, that, um, that shyness in terms of uh, the understatement of the wines that you see from her, because she's so modest. Um, you, as you said, when you meet her at tasting, when you're com even when you compliment her on how beautiful the wines are, it's, it, it seems to almost make her uncomfortable <laughs> that she doesn't, you know, she's not obviously in it for the, for the, uh, the effusive praise, but there's just, um, I always, yeah, I, I love these wines. We work with, uh, we, we've worked with them for a couple of years since, uh, since uh, we, you introduced them to me, and I just think that uh, she's such a great personality, and I always, what got me into wine was seeing a winemaker's personality and how it kind of seemed to be so obvious in their wines. And then to meet other winemakers and see the same thing from very contrasting but similar wines. And so I think whenever I meet winemakers and I taste their wines, I'm always looking for that connection. And I think it, with Kelly, maybe because I've, it's a very shallow analysis, but for me it seems obvious in the, in the brief 
brief moments I've, I've But she spent. feels very connected, deeply connected. I mean, she would almost describe herself as volcanic, and these vineyards as volcanic, and it's about capturing the volcanic terroir of Marsh. I mean, she, she talks about them as their people, and, and you only have to spend one or two days in, in each of these vineyards to recognize their very particular character. It's almost as though they do have their personality. And she is very, she's a very philosophical person, very deep thinker, but also very much, I was going to say, a creature of nature. I mean, she's never happier than when she's talking to her vines. She, she loves the isolation. She loves being just in the vineyard. I've never met a person who spends so much time in, in the vines and just absorbing the landscape, you know? It's, it's quite, that is, and, uh, and who would sort of characterize, never talking about herself as, an, as a winemaker, but characterize the wines in terms of almost sort of in, in such poetic spiritual mm. terms. So, you know, Montazi is a dragon, basically, or I can't remember what Marsh is meant to be. But, but you see it when she, when she talks to you about it and you just absorb that as a lesson. And she, for me, she's like, she, she's sort of my, my mentor. I've sort of almost rediscovered wine after having met her. Um, and she made me think of it in, in sort of different sort of terms, almost different colors, different shades. Uh, different depths of, of, of what it was all about and made me think about the, the vineyard again rather than about winemaking. Winemaking never interested me as such as a sort of like a chemical transformation, but capturing the soul of, of a place and a vintage really became that much more important as far as I was you know, you concerned. Can, you can really see, uh, I, I, I get it why you brought two. <laughs> I mean, the, the context of the reference against each other, you both see the obvious uniqueness of each individual terroir, but then there's also undeniable the, the same fingerprints on both on both wines, which is what um, is quite exciting to see. Do you think, I don't want to generalize as well, <laughs> but do you think women make wine differently because just in nature, women are, are natural born, you know, nurturers, because they nurture the next generation, that's what they do. So when they're in the earth connected, they're, they make things to nurture people rather than to showcase certain things. And I, I know for a fact in, in the kitchen, because when I used to be a chef, that women, female chefs tend to cook because they want to give and because they want people to enjoy it. Not so much because they want to be the big honcho in the kitchen. That is exactly what she, she, would, she would say as well. Um, wines are to bring people together but they have a sort of medicinal thing. You know, they make you, they make you feel good when, you, when you're drinking them. Uh, she is a mother, uh, but, and she's also, for her, she is the midwife, you know, so she brings this to birth, and then she releases it, puts it on its feet, and after that, she doesn't really want to know about the wine. I mean, the wine exists, but it's nothing to do with her. She's done the hard work already, um, and it's, it's really to, for other people to share and to ex express their opinion. What you can do is really sort of second guess. Why did you do this? Why did you do that? Those sort of questions become really irrelevant, you know, because there is such a, there's so much about the smaller picture, whereas the bigger picture is sort of what's in the glass, you know, how, how it is on the day. It, it, they're coils. They don't sort of, they don't always sort of release, you know, in terms of their personality, like people, you know, sometimes we're a bit shy and, you know, you're a bit stumbly. And then sometimes that, you know, we're eloquent and voluble and, these, these, these are so different, you know, and I think um, uh, when I first, I, I first um, you know, encountered the wines, I, always felt like I was always loving Marsh because it was just more transparent for me and warmer and sort of whatever. But now I've come to appreciate Montazi because of its, it's an exhilarating wine. It has that minerality. It has that 
energy and that edge from it's a stunningly beautiful vineyard, the Mumtazi Vineyard uh, in McMinnville, owned by no, owned by Mo Mumtazi. He, he owns the whole vineyard, uh, and they just look different, you know, they, those places, and they they just different give, give different sort of soils because the wine is on um, because this is a Jory and Neckia soils on on a high bedrock, so so shallow soils. The the vines penetrate deep and extract minerals. So these will always be darker wines, but there's also something very cooling and bright and energetic, whereas these are always like, as I say, earthier wines, more sort of like, well, you know, easy. Uh, and I, I want to highlight also, it's quite interesting, that, you know, this is the, uh, of the other growers that we've had, every, the other th three wines have been from France or Italy, and so to have something from the New World where it's a completely different, uh, we don't, there's not the heritage or the, the, the inheritance, so obviously in terms of uh, multi generations of handover, as we have in Burgundy, in terms of how, how people come into their um, ventures or, or domains. And I think that there's obviously a unique set of challenges as, um, as, a, as a woman um, entrepreneur in, in the wine industry in Oregon relative to how that would contrast with someone in Oregon or in Italy or uh, anywhere else, maybe in Europe. Um, but uh, I, North America is quite interesting as well because you have so many, there's such a diversity of exciting um, women producing wine. Um, some, some, I mean, uh, from, from all ends of the spectrum, we can talk about Heidi Barrett, who's you know, responsible for several vintages of um, 100 Point Screaming Eagle, which is the complete opposite of the kind of um, ethereal, finessed wines we're talking about, but profound to a certain audience of wines that, and, and, um, and acclaim that they've achieved. And, and then you have kind of another, uh, the next generation, uh, uh, Kelly Fox, uh, and then you have young winemakers in the same kind of league as what you found with like Martha Struman and, and other producers that are coming up doing so many. It's such a, a massive, um, the, you know, the, the spectrum is, is so broad in terms of that. And I think that is maybe the, one of the most important things for us to know if we're having any sort of relevant conversation about great women winemakers is that great women winemakers are no different in terms of the kinds of wines they produce than great winemakers of any ilk. And, um, you know, we, we can talk about some of these ethereal expressions and, and, and these natural harmonies, but uh, the, it should be important to anybody listening if there's any sort of ignorant assumption that there's a, a way to define what a woman, a, a great woman winemaker's wines taste like, then that's uh, as ignorant, as ignorant and, and limiting as it could be. But, um, I think there's a holistic thing to be made here. The reason why I brought these wines, <laughs> I was always going to bring the wines, uh, was that she farm, she's a farmer but she's a winemaker as well. And so she sees the whole thing from the beginning of the, you know, of the vine to the, to the bottling of it and, and the release of it and does all the back of house administration. It's like one woman, one woman band. Um, and I think the other thing to bear in mind is the scale of it. It's such a, it's a, such a small scale project. Most, most women can't afford, I mean, most women can't afford to buy their vineyards. So she's lucky she works with two fantastic parcels of fruit and people who've sort of mentored her. She's, she, has, she's, she worked at Erie, as she was the winemaker at uh, Erie Vineyards under David Lett. So again, incredibly inspirational character. And then, you know, she channeled everything that is about her and her beliefs and, and her feelings about wine and what she loves to drink, Pomar, Volnay, um, Bartolo Mascarello. <laughs> you can almost see it in the wine. This is what she loves to drink. And this is sort of like, that sort of, I'm not saying that influences the final outcome. It's all part and parcel of what makes the wines the way they are. But really, of course, you couldn't do it without those special vineyards. And, you know, and she is, 
you know, she's the opposite of ego. She's totally about listening and then, and then channeling, I guess. When we talk about what makes great wine, it's usually the intersect of great terroir and a, um, a great winemaker. And I think the essence of what one of the core fun foundations of what is a great winemaker is that humility and ability to um, remove your own ego from the interpretation of what you're given. And, and um, we've shown some great examples today of some some women who are very adept at doing just that. And. As with, that, with always, we can only put four or five bottles of wine on the table at a time for one of these episodes, so it's never to be exclusive or limited to just what's on the table, but I think um, if we're talking about great women, in, um, great women, if we're talking about great women winemakers, all of the wines that we had today spoke quite eloquently to that. So thank you for bringing some beautiful wines and sharing some time with us. And Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks to Stefano and the team here at uh, Luca Restaurant on St. John Street for the hospitality, and uh, see you again soon. Yes. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please take a moment to share a review online or share the episode with your friends.